So we started our, our series last week by setting the historical context and giving the main theme of Hosea. So I want to just kind of leave it at that because we have a lot to cover this morning. And if you've missed that last week, I encourage you to go to the website, catch all that, and you understand where we are coming from as we walk through the Old Testament and some of the things we may deal with today. We'll cover just a little bit of that. So we have a lot to cover, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. All you need is love, right? Famous line from John Lennon, uh, song, All You Need Is Love, right? All you need is love, right? Y'all remember that. Some people do, some people don't, right? All you need is a famous love song of John Lennon. Seems to be the mantra of our culture. Seems to be what our culture teaches is that all we need is love. And if we loved one another, then all of our society's ills and hatred and everything that's wrong in the world would come to an end. To, love, to most people, love is an exciting word. It's a purely positive emotion. Some would say that love is the desire that, that motivates all of our decisions. That we go after what we, what we love the most. I want that, or I want that person because they make me feel a certain way, so therefore I love them. Then there are those who see love as a desire or a feeling that just kind of comes over you because of a certain thing. You know how we all feel about Taco Bell and, and, um, and uh, Krispy Kreme when we see that red light come on. There's this feeling that comes over us that we need it, that we love it. And then there are those who would purely say that love is only found in self-sacrifice when caring for someone else over your very own needs. Or maybe it's saying that love is an admiration or a delight in someone else that you care about so that you forget about yourself and you forsake yourself for their good and for their needs and for their desires. However, or whatever else you may come up with uh, and, and how to define love and how to add to that definition, one thing that we, we do know is that love is the supreme value in our culture. So however you want to define it, and however you, you define it, or however you, you like it, or you want it, is love. That's love. And then what I think is love, however I want it, then everybody else has to be the same way. Or it's not love. No longer is it tolerable or loving to ask the question, is that right? Is that true? Because posing such a question now shows, number one, you are being unloving. That's unloving. You can't oppose what I love, no matter if it's right or wrong. If you call something love, then you have justified it beyond all reason, beyond all truth, beyond all reality, even beyond science. You've justified it completely. You cannot question it. We have taken, in a sense, what the Bible says God is love, and we've turned it around to God, or love is God. So what is love? 
We talked about Hosea last week. We, we saw that it reveals to us the, the passion of God. What God is most passionate about is his glory. And he will not share his glory with another. And his glory is on display for us to see in this world and in the Bible by showing us his holiness and his love. Now, Hosea, as we talked about last week, is an awkward, uncomfortable story between Hosea, a prophet, and Gomer, his wife. And this story is a real-life parable to tell what's happening between the covenant relationship, the marriage relationship between Israel and God. So this morning... As we unpack this story, we're going to cover three chapters this morning, so we do got a lot to cover. We're going to see love on display, biblical love on display, real biblical love on display, as it reveals love's challenge, love's recovery, and love's restoration. So despite the, the, bleak, and the bleak situation that we talked a lot about, what, what brought us up to Hosea and the harsh words of the Lord and the, and the, the crazy family drama that's brought out to us in in Hosea, despite all that, what we see is the love of God on display for his people. That God loves his people and that he has always loved his people. And in loving his people, as, as he unearths and exposes and sheds light on the sin of his people, we see the heartbreak of God. We see the deep emotion of God. We see the love of God, the passion of God on display. This God who, who called them out, the one who rescued them from Egypt, the one who gave them this, their law so that they would see who God is and how to, how to then love Him back. This is the God who, who has never forgotten them and so much more. But Israel desired and loved sin. And there we have it. The great challenge to the love is sin. This is what makes love hard. Sin. If you're married, you know what that means. Sometimes it can be hard. The sin of Israel is given to us explicitly in verse 2 when he says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Three times I had to say that uncomfortable, awkward word before you. Three times. But it's out there and given to us for a reason. Because, because that word comes right at us where we can't escape from it. We can't, we can't turn from what's really happening in the land of Israel. And the same thing for Israel. They cannot turn away from it. It is right before them. This is what you are guilty of. You know, I, I feel uncomfortable in reading that word because I know it applies to me, as we talked about last week, and that makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't think my sin is that bad. And Israel thought the exact same thing. My sin's not that bad. It's just a little something-something on the side. Everyone's doing it. And this is why sin is a challenge to love, because it blinds us. It blinds us to the truth and the real reality 
the real reality of what true love is. In fact, look how much it distorts love. All the things we talked about earlier, what we think love is. So we're brought into this story of Hosea and Gomer. And yet what God wants us to see is the the personal nature of our sin. Did you ever think that our acts of sin as something so personal, something so directly involving God, that this is how Hosea describes the nature of sin? And so whenever we reject God's law and we choose sin, then we are rejecting God Him personally. We do not sin indifferently. We do not sin arbitrarily. We, we sin intentionally, and it's directly against the personality of God. Breaking the law of God is not impersonal. It betrays His personal covenant, just like in marriage. And this is why God told Hosea to go take a wife of whoredom, and he did. He married Gomer. And in this marriage, they had three children. And these three children were all given names, and they're illustrations of the sin that Israel was guilty of, the sin that Israel was conceived doing. First was the child of bloodshed. You'll see it in verses 4 and 5. The child called bloodshed. Hosea and Gomer had a son. God told him to to name the son Jezreel. And we talked about Jezreel last week. This is the the valley of, of Jezreel. This is where Naboth's vineyard was. And you remember Naboth. Naboth was murdered so that Ahab could be pleased and own the vineyard of Naboth. Ahab was a king in Israel, wicked king in, in Israel. And then so then God raised up Jehu. Jehu came in, slaughtered the house of Ahab, took over, and in the, the slaughter took place in Jezreel. And so when people thought of Jezreel, they thought bloodshed. It's like us saying Auschwitz. Call your child Auschwitz. Call your child Dachau. Bloodshed. Death. That's what I want you to call your child. And the reason they named, he called them this was to point them to the evil and to the, the bloodshed that, was, that, that was soon would be upon them because of their own bloodshed and their own evil and rejection of the Lord. He, they had a second child, verse 6 and 7, a child called unloved. And this time it was a daughter. God tells him to call her no mercy No mercy, unloved. In response to Israel's spiritual idolatry, God withholds from them His power and His mercy. More of of the sin of Israel is revealed here because this is what God tells us will not save them anymore. The things that they've been trusting in, military might, strength, trusted in in their bows that will now soon be broken. The very places they thought they could find rescue and help, God was going to break. The third child that he had is not my people, verses 8 and and 9. This third child, another son. This baby's name literally means not my son. And so when people would look at Hosea, Hosea is holding the baby out by the park or whatever. They say, oh, this cute boy you got there. What's his name? Not my baby. And God was not being cruel to these children and to the judgment of Israel. But he was revealing the core of their sin. The core of their sin and the judgment that will be placed upon them because of their sin. Look back at verse 2. Look back back at verse 2. In the second half it says, For the land commits great whoredom, adultery, by forsaking the Lord. 
Their acts of adultery against the Lord was a devotion, a love, a desire, an affection that is turned away from their husband and toward false gods and idolaters and, and lovers to them. Idolatry was their, was their greatest problem because they had forsaken the Lord. They forgot the Lord. And their lust for this desire and for their idols brought out this spiritual idolatry. And idolatry and spiritual Id- adultery go together. Because of idolatry, there is spiritual adultery. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 2. Read with me starting in verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Look at verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, she is not my wife, for I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery between her breasts. Literally, verse 2, he is saying, if she is my wife, she isn't acting like it. If that's my wife, she is not acting like it. And he says, put away your whoring from your face. The adornment, right? The makeup, the look of a prostitute. Get it away from your face. The, the jewelry, get it away from your chest. Lest I strip her naked, I'll shame you, and make her as in the days she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and I will kill her with thirst. This is pointing back to the, to the Exodus when they were in the, the wilderness and they were thirsting for even water. Upon her children, so I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She has conceived with them to act shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Skip down to verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So imagine with me this picture. is a, a wife who's married to, to, a, to a humble worker. And times are hard in this marriage and in this, this family. Money is hard to come by. There's struggle. And then this, this wife catches the eye of a rich businessman, and this rich businessman begins to shower her with gifts and luxuries that her husband could never afford. And so she chooses that wealth and that security of this new lover over a life with her husband. This is the same logic that Israel has. They look to the nations. They look to what the other gods could provide. This God of fertility could bless my land, so I'm going to offer a little something, something here because they could give me what I need. Give me my, my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and all the drink that I want. But her, her, her logic was utterly flawed because it was not Baal at all who was providing for Israel, but it was the Lord. We saw that in verse 8. See how blind they were to love? See how blind they were to, to love and, and more entrenched in their sin and what they, what they wanted materially. In that great prosperity, they gave glory to the idols and not to the Lord. And they took the things that God gave them and used them to bless idols instead of the Lord. You see, this is what sin does. It turns everything upside down. It blinds us to give credit to ourselves and to our own hard work and to our own initiative as being the provider of our blessing while forgetting the driving force behind those blessings. Every good gift comes from the Lord. Read it this morning, Romans 8.28. But in this verse, 
We see underneath root, underneath here this root of sin that Israel went after her lovers and she forgot me, declares the Lord. So what does this mean for us? Hosea, over and over, will reveal to us an, an unfaithful, wrong-loving, prostitute people. And we must realize that Hosea's condemnation of Israel does not apply so much as we can take and apply to, to non-Christians out there. No, what, what Hosea is telling Israel can apply to, to us, to God's people, the church. We want to be so careful in, in, in these moments now to not let pride creep up like sin does and, and deceive us and blind us to make us think that, that this sin that we're talking about here is not us, but it's somewhere out there. It's the people driving the roads, not going to church. We can become very blindful and we can be very self-righteous and we don't want to be the self-righteous church that cannot see their sin. Lord forbid it. Because this is Hosea meant for us. This word's for us. So we must examine ourselves. Examine our, ourselves and our sin before the face of the Lord. See the sin in each one of us. See our double-mindedness. See our spiritual adultery. Brothers and sisters, what kind of heart do you have for God? What kind of heart do you have for God? What is, the, the, what is it that you desire the most? See, our hearts are the root cause of all of our actions and what we worship. And this is what his, uh, Hosea is exposing in Israel, their heart's desire. Now, just as a, a quick side note, there's many similarities in, in, uh, uh, between uh, uh, us and Israel, but there's also one major difference. There's also one major difference. God's people in, in, in the Old Testament are under the, the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the only way you can enter into the community of the Old Covenant is being born into it. But that is not, that is not how we have been brought into God's New Covenant. We are not born into the, the Old Covenant, but we are born of the Spirit of God. And that's the only way that we can, be, we can be born into the New Covenant of God, into the new community. The very fact that we have become members of the church is a result of God's Spirit. It's a very result of God's Spirit. So what unifies us is not our ethnicity, even though we're almost the same. That's not what unites us. But our shared identity in Jesus Christ, that is what unifies us. And our shared commitment to God together May we always, as a church and as a people, always bear witness to the wonderful, saving grace of God and how He has given us new life. So if you've, been, if you've been born again, know that God has given you new life. And in that new life, He has also given us this new heart for Him. So that sin, take an axe to the root of that sin that starts in the heart. Take an axe to it that separates you from God and His love. And this is why it's important for us as members of the church, the local church, that we're apart and we're faithful and we're committed because this is where we will find help together in, in fighting for holiness and our abilities to delight in God together. So the challenge to, to God's love is sin. So how can love be recovered? This is the next question. How can love be recovered? And that is through repentance. And that is through repentance. Hosea has some dark words of judgment, and we've read a few of those in chapter 2. 
But the call to his people of repentance is like, a, is like a glimmer of light given to the people. It's a grace of God given to Israel to, to turn from idols and to turn from sin and to turn toward him. And look at chapter 2 again. Look with me back in verse 1. Look where it says, plead. Plead with your mother. This is a call that, that she would remove all forms, plead, that she will remove all forms of adultery from her face and from her unfaithfulness of her chest. Remove it all. And it's all throughout the book of Hosea. Chapter 6, 8, 10, 12, 14. We see clear and clear calls. But intermingled with these pleas of repentance, we also see the holiness of God in His judgment. And in His judgment, we see these, these calls of repentance because we need to see, once again, how serious God takes sin. And therefore, if God takes serious sin and will judge sin, therefore we, as a people, we should repent. So hear the judgment of God. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Look what God says. Therefore I will hedge up her a way of thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. They shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her the silver, the gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain and its time and my wine and its season. I will take back my wool and my flax, which will cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and, and her, all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste, her, uh, lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lover has given me. I will make them a forest, and a beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. You see what God does here? See what he says here? He says, I will hedge up a way, a, a way of thorns. I will build against her. I will take back my grain. I will, I will take away my wool. I will uncover her. I will put an end to. I will lay waste. I will make them a forest and I will punish them. God's acting. He's doing this. And it seems harsh to us and even seems sometimes even out of place that as if a holy judge, God is just acting out of revenge. But that's far different from what we've talked about already. But there's a different angle that we need to be looking at this passage that God, could he be acting out of his love and his holiness and judging his people? And he's not acting out of vindictiveness and revenge but through his judgment of Israel, God is pursuing his bride. That with withdrawing his mercy and his blessing, that God is actually going after her. Absolutely. He removes his blessing. He removes his blessing in order to bless us. In order to be merciful. And this is God's mercy 
This is God's mercy because what it is doing, what it's going to do in Israel, and what it does in us sometimes is that it prevents us from finding satisfaction in other lovers. When God takes those things away from us, when he takes that prosperity, when he takes that health, when he takes those idols, whatever it may be, he is acting in his mercy. And this is a whole new perspective that we should gain. And it gives us a whole new perspective on pain and suffering. That God in His mercy will strip us bare of our idols so that we can recognize our sin and repent. Remember the deceitfulness of sin and how it blinds us to its deadliness. And to remind us how serious it is so God withdraws his blessings. Seems counterintuitive, right? I mean, somehow when we want to be noticed by someone and we want someone to come back, we'll shower them with gifts. Sounds counterintuitive to us. But what God is doing in removing those and calling them back into repentance is that he is showing them once again what is more valuable. Is it the blessings or is it him? All of our blessings in this life, brothers and sisters, are given to us by the Lord to show His supreme value, not the value of the gift, not the value of the thing, not the value of the the person. But that's not what Israel was interested in. We saw it in the passage. They weren't interested in repentance. They weren't interested in God. They were interested in His stuff. And whoever would give them the stuff is who they would go after. Whether it be Yahweh, or Baal, or both of them at the same time. Eventually, we know that Assyria came and destroyed Israel, took them into exile, destroyed Israel, 722 B.C., just like Hosea had prophesied over and over again. God's punishment could not be avoided. Israel had ignored God too much for too long. Their sin was so deep and so grievous against God, yet God was still gracious in sending Hosea to call them to repentance. No matter how grievous the sin, God would forgive the repenting sinner. I hope that we will see from this point how serious sin is, how serious sin is to God, and that there's no sin out there, brothers and sisters, that is worth giving our life for. We always have to be repenting, turning, to, turning from them and turning toward what is supremely valuable, and that is God Himself, and loving Him. You see, we, can't, we, cannot separate, we cannot separate God's love and we cannot separate His holiness because just because God loves you does not mean that He accepts us just as we are and then leaves us in our sins. See, that's, that is false. That's because God loves us as we are. He does not leave us in our sins. That is not the picture of the love in the Bible. The love of our Heavenly Father is greater than that. It is not of moral indifference or unconcern. It is to draw us into what is good and what is right and what is true. What will bring lasting joy. Joy that will everlasting joy that will last. How much, brothers and sisters, how much would I have to hate my children to let them do whatever they want whenever they wanted? How much do I have to hate them? I mean, don't we already have enough of those kids running around? How much? And yet God loves us what is best for us. And His love for us is 
found in his holiness and his righteousness so that we would be holy and so that we would be righteous. So confess our sins and repent of them. Love's challenge is sin. Love's recovery is repentance. But lastly, love's restoration becomes our hope. Love's restoration becomes our hope. Hosea is not just filled with with warnings and calls to repentance. But this is where, where, where love's commitment absolutely just kind of pierces through the darkness of, of judgment and doom, which seems so bad, especially what we have already read. And this is, the, this is where we find the promises of hope. The promises of hope. Love is restored and looking at hope. It becomes our hope. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. I know I'm kind of bouncing around. But it'll make sense when we, get, when we cover this. Look at verse 10. Think in your mind what this sounds like when I read it. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall, shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said, to, said to, to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God, and the child, children of Judah, and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up for them a land, and, and they shall be great in the day of Jezreel. So after the, what's happening to the children, the names of children, the children that are given, and the judgment that's placed upon, uh, upon Israel, we see hope, a promise of restoration that, that echoes the promise that is given to Abraham. That even though this generation will be judged, God will still be faithful to his promise. His promise to, to his bride that he will preserve a remnant. That God will, will eventually restore His people. He will renew the covenant. He will bring reconciliation where there is division. Where the northern kingdom hated, hated the southern kingdom. He will bring reconciliation there and renewal. We see a reinstatement of the one true king. A return to the land. That reinstatement of the one true king is Jesus, by the way. A return to the land. And this is, where we, we, this is where we kind of need to know the, the word language here. Look at verse 11. At the very end, he says, And they shall go up from the land, and great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, we talked about what Jezreel is synonymous for, right? Bloodshed. But Jezreel actually has a meaning. And you know what it means? It means God planted. God planted. We're Jezreel. God, God planted. God is going to bring new life to this people and bring them back into a greater new land and bring restoration to this land that once was representing bloodshed and evil and, and wickedness will be brought to something good. God will plant the seeds of righteousness and holiness. And it started in the sending of His Son and fulfilled in His Son. Jesus became our sin. He became all of, our, all of our adultery and all of our desires for, for idols. He became all of that so that we can be brought near and restored. By the way, this is what Paul points to in Romans chapter 9. And he takes a wicked people as Israel and a wicked Gentiles like us and he restores them. The fulfillment of that. And then right here, Right after the judgment we saw in chapter 2, 
that exposes their sins and their unfaithfulness. He also pronounces the hope of restoration in verses 14 through 23. Look with me there. Chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Therefore, behold. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I mean, I'll, I'll woo her back. And I'll bring her into the wilderness and I'll speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her their vineyards and, and make the valley of Angkor a door of hope. This is speaking back to back to the Exodus once again. When they're wandering in the desert, the valley of Angkor was kind of that area where they crossed over the Jordan. It's like, and, and so just stop for just a second. What he's saying is, is I want to take my love back to where we fell in love. And I want to see her re- rekindled and allured back to that great love that I had for her. Verse 15, And there she shall answer in the days of her youth as it is in the time that she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, or or you call me just another one of your gods. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of the the names of the Baals from her mouth. Make her clean. He said, the washing of white as snow here, that they may be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant covenant, that new covenant on that day where the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground we spoke about Romans 8 and I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war of the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth to you for, to me forever and I will betroth to me in righteousness and justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you in, to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. No, you will know intimately because of this great union that we have here. This perfect union with God that's being exposed to us right here in, in verses 19 and 20. Betrothed. Brought to me. Listen, listen to verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. God planted. And I will sow for her myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, And he shall say, you are my God. Do you you see what's happening? Do you see the turnaround from chapter 1 now to chapter 2? The three children that were being despised by their own parents with such horrific names and horrific meanings is talking about our restoration in Christ. That the bloodshed that we brought upon Christ Jezreel will be restored and renewed so that we can be God-planted. And where once we were people with no mercy, we deserve no mercy, God abundantly showers mercy on His people. And where we once were called, you're not my people, you're not my baby, God says, come on, you're my people. We saw that in Ephesians 3. You are now my people. You Gentiles who are not a part of this covenant, come on in. Look what my son Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. You are my people. And this is what we will say. You are my God. You are my God. 
Look at chapter 3. It gets, it gets better. Actually, it gets a little worse before it gets better in chapter 3 here. But, but what we saw in chapter 2 is the prophecy that we see being enacted in chapter 3. This is the love restored here. The hope that we have. Listen to what it says. And, and the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Talking to, to Hosea. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. I can't imagine that Hosea's love for his wife is very positive and pure. But it's a love that is grounded in commitment and devotion and covenant. And he goes, even as the Lord loves his children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes or cakes of raisin. Isn't that funny? But just to kind of put, put it in perspective, and I think it's talking about what they, what they kind of get when they come to the, the worship areas of Baal and the worship temples and the sites, that they would be fed there as well. That they love those cakes of raisins, and that kind of brings them back. So what that kind of, make, what that kind of uh, makes sense and for us is that a, a person or a Christian or whoever may go to a church that's heretical just because they have donuts. I did not intend for what you might be giggling about, but, but there's something to be said there. And look what God's pointing out. Verse 2. So I bought her, Hosea. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, and you shall not play the whore or belong to any other man so will I be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek to the Lord, their God, and David, pointing to Jesus here, Jesus will be their king, and they shall come and fear the Lord and, his, and to his goodness in the latter days. His goodness. We're not fear because He's mighty and strong and we're afraid that He's going to kill us, but we are fearing the Lord because of His goodness, because of His holiness and His love. Because of His holiness and His love. And isn't this just a picture of the saving grace of God here in chapter 3? I mean, think about me. Think about this for a second. Here's Hosea, the prophet of God. A man of God. A man of purity. Of righteousness and uprightness. God commands, go into the filth, darkest alleys of your town and go buy your wife. Go buy her back as if you were a suitor of the night. Go buy her. That's scandalous. Do you, do you see how scandalous that is? In fact, it's so scandalous... Uh, guys, some, some commentators and theologians don't like that. They want to translate this and uh, interpret this allegorically. That it's just all symbolic. But the truth is, what this shows us here is the scandalous message of God's love given to us by grace. Because we are Gomer. God sent His Son into this world to purchase and redeem an adulterous people. 
Grace is scandalous. The love of God through the grace of Christ is scandalous. Do you see where all these promises are based on? And all the restorations based on it? It's, it's entirely based on God's own love. It's entirely based on God's love. His, his own compassion and his, his grace has nothing to do with this people. And it didn't even come back and say, because you repented. It doesn't even say that. It's because of God's great love. And this same restoration is, of, of hope is offered to us if we will turn to God and to His truth and the great hope that He holds out to us through His Son. It could be our hope as well and we can be restored as well. We can be restored to this great hope. This hope that is found in Jesus Christ who, who paid the penalty of our sins if we would repent of our sins and believe in Him. Do we see clearer now on what love really is as we considered Hosea? Hosea's love for his wife, Gomer, and also God's love for his people? A.W. Pink defines love for us in saying, all religion is in effect love. Faith is thankful acceptance and thankfulness is an expression of love. Repentance is love mourning. Yearning for holiness is love seeking. Obedience is love pleasing. Self-denial is the mortification of self-love. Sobriety is the curtailing of carnal love. The affections of man cannot be idle. If they do not go out to God, they leak out to worldly things. When our love for God decreases, the love for the world grows in our souls. I agree with Pink here. And I think this is exactly what Hosea is pointing us to. That we need to have a, this, this desire and affection to always be going after the love of God and the things that God loves. And this is where the gospel becomes so sweet to us because once again, we're Gomer. We are the unfaithful objects of God's ever-faithful love. Y'all hear that? You and I are the unfaithful objects of God's ever-faithful love. And when we begin to understand this, of who we are, and continually reminded of this, of who we are, then we'll begin to really understand what love is. And know how to truly define it in our actions and in our obedience. God's deep desire. God's deep desire. Think about what we read here. God's deep desire to execute His justice and to punish sin. And then also how he, is, how he is considering or how he is his great love, his great love on display through this great plan of redemption that we walk through. Think about that. And it's all been accomplished through the cross. Through the cross. That is love. We all know what Gomer deserves, but her only hope was in a love that was undeserved. And that love is our only hope as well. I want to close this morning by praying the prayer that, that John Calvin wrote out as a prayer in response to this passage this morning. I thought it would be so fitting. And it will be up on here. And, and let's just all agree at the end, amen, together. Here's what he says, and pray this with me. Grant, Almighty God, that we, that as we were from our beginning lost, when thou wert pleased to extend to us thy hand and to restore us to salvation for the sake of thy Son, 
and that as we continue, even daily, to run headlong to our own ruin, O grant that we may not, by sinning so often, so provoke at length thy displeasure as to cause thee to take away from us the mercy which thou hast hitherto exercised toward us, and through which thou hast adopted us, but by the Spirit destroy the wickedness of our hearts and restore to us a sound mind, that we may ever cleave to to thee with true and sincere heart, that being fortified by thy defense, we may continue safe, even amidst all kinds of danger, until at length thou gatherest us into the blessed rest, which has been prepared for us in heaven by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.